Welcome to Talking Bach, a podcast by Bach Academy Australia. My name is Madeline Easton and I am the Artistic Director of Bach Academy Australia. This brand new podcast series will accompany each of our concert series throughout the year. The topic of our upcoming season is the weapons of rhetoric. Now, throughout this podcast season, we will be chatting to three different but equally wonderful exponents of the arts of rhetoric. The idea behind this podcast season is to whet your appetite for the wonderful music of Bach you will hear, but to also really deepen and enrich your knowledge of the fantastic and fascinating subject of the weapons of rhetoric. My guest today is the eminent Australian lawyer and QC, Jonathan Horton, who will be joining us on stage this weekend for our Weapons of Rhetoric program. Jonathan is fascinating because he spends his life equally in the legal world and in the musical world, having been a lifelong lover of music and a musician himself in his own right. We had an amazing half hour talking all things music and what music is really for and the higher purpose and the transcendence that Bach music gives us. So I really hope you enjoy episode three of our podcast. So Jonathan, it's so nice that you're here. Thank you so much for being our guest on our third episode of Talking Bach. Well, thank you so much for having me, Madeline. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's wonderful to have someone so learned uh, to be involved <laughs> in this fantastic uh, project that we've got going called The Weapons of Rhetoric which is this coming weekend. I can't believe it's crept up on us. I know, it's so close. It really is. Are you rehearsing hard? We have. We've had six hours of it today, which was fantastic. We mapped out all the pieces and got through everything, and tomorrow we'll be doing more. And maybe actually by the time everybody listens to this, we will be have done our rehearsal process and we'll be oh. on our way to the stage. Wonderful. <laughs> With I... you up on stage. Exactly. No, I think, uh, well, I'm looking forward to it. I think Jonathan Biggins is as well. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we're very very pleased to be able to be involved. Oh, look, it's fantastic. It's going to be a really different concert experience, isn't it? It seems so because there'll just there'll not only just be the performance, but there'll be this added idea, I guess, of what it is that Bach's doing with rhetoric in his music and how that relates to our particular fields, acting and, uh, and advocacy in a way, legal advocacy from my perspective. Absolutely. I was thinking about this today, actually. We, we sort of have a three-pronged attack, don't we? Yes. We have... The actor's perspective, we have the legal's perspective, and then we have the musical perspective. Yes. And uh, you might think that because actors and lawyers use words, it's the same thing, but it's not, is it? No. In a way, it's all language, I guess, that we're dealing with. I think the musicians are dealing with a, a subtler language almost. Um, in law, of course, we've we've got various ways of using words, but it's that subtler languages, I think, that accompanies music which takes us into that the new space, if you like, that middle space, that, that really what so much that I do doesn't necessarily express me, but we need to draw on it more and more, which is why that, that the musical side of things is so important. Yeah, yeah. So listen, you are here being interviewed as our guest because of this thing called music. Now, even though your professional life has been centred around all things legal, music has had a real draw on you. And so, look, tell me about the beginnings of your lifelong love of music and also your relationship to Bach. Great. Well, I grew up in Sydney here and I don't remember a time when I suppose I wasn't learning in the sense that uh, I lived in a house with uh, six siblings and two parents, both of whom were good musicians. One had trained in voice, one had trained in piano. I grew up with older siblings, so they're teaching you at the same time. There's family bands. I'm not pretending I was talented. 
but I was musical enough and immersed in it. And so uh, from the time before you have conscious memory, I guess, you're waking up with people practicing in the morning and you're participating in music is, is so much an entwined part of your life, um, right through from the home into the church, I guess, if you like. So that's, I suppose, where the Bach component comes in. But So Bach, um, obviously, learning and being fascinated by Bach. And then in later life, I guess, or younger life, but earlier than earlier than now, using Bach with study and uh, to accompany study of law. So great to listen to, great to pass the time to on those boring details we sometimes have to do. But those, the, the Bach puzzles, the Bach uh, cello suites and so forth, all that beautiful music to keep you motivated and to keep your focus on something that can often be a boring task. <laughs> so you actively used Bach in your professional life to help you with your legal studies? Very much so. That's and, amazing. And daily life. There's not a day, if I'm not in court, where I won't be listening to music in chambers, i.e. the legal chambers, as from the yes. chamber orchestra. Yes. But uh, just if I'm travelling, if I'm working away, normally we'll have Bach or some other great composer on, but Bach particularly. Is there something about the way he writes that gets you in the right headspace or gets you sort of centred and your thoughts ordered? Yeah, there is. It depends a bit what sort of work you're doing, I guess. You don't want anything too heavy if you're doing something complicated. But if you're um, doing something more mindless or mechanical, uh, then you can have, I suppose, more more involved music on. But I've loved, for example, the organ music, which can become very dominant, as you know. Yes. <laughs> But I love that sort of to entertain and um, give this sense of movement, I guess, in the day as you go about your your daily legal work. Of course, we can't do it in court, but wouldn't it be nice? What a shame. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, but, you know, you, you've been so involved with music, like not just a, like a normal person was who has uh, just a general love of music, but, you know, you've really involved yourself in it with, the you know, the Lev Lysenko piano competition and, you know, yes. you know, really sponsoring lots of arts organisations. Well, it's been lovely being around people who are motivated, I think, in this other space. Um, so it's a space which often isn't as well remunerated, but people who are passionate about what they do, I think they're doing something really important. And I think, again, work, this, this subtler language which musicians have, which composers and musicians share, this idea that um, communicating the inexpressible, the things that we don't ex can't express always with words, and it's another mode of human communication, but in, I think, what's a really important space, particularly when we come to Bach, who's deliberately trying to deal with um, the transcendent or the important, the, 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 the common good, the highest sort of common goods, and um, he's musicifying those. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's amazing that, you know, someone who's just so eminent in their legal profession just dedicates themselves every spare second you have. You seem to be in and around musicians. Well, it may be, maybe their energy keeps me going and music and its beauty and its sort of never never ending interest, I think, maybe keeps me going. So maybe I wouldn't be able to do it without that sort of musical intrigue. So to well, speak. I think we'll officially call you one of us. Oh, thank you. That's very, very nice. I think you've earned that. it. <laughs> Maybe I didn't have a talent in music, but I certainly have the interest. I don't actually think that's true. Um, you achieved your Amos on piano, which is no No, small I didn't quite. Thing. No, I didn't quite. I didn't. So anyway, I'll work towards it one day. That's to go back to <laughs> okay, it. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, that's wonderful. And now um, I just wanted to ask you, you know, how has your knowledge and love of music helped you in the legal profession? I mean, you've just written a book. 
about astonishment. And when I heard about this, I thought that's particularly fascinating. And, you know, you when we were talking before, you were telling me how much music's helped you write this book. And tell me about, you know, how it's helped and where you come from it. Yeah, well, I'm a contributor to a book on it. There's a few others write as well. I'm writing my own in a, in a, I've just written my own from a legal perspective. But it's this concept really that, um, when we come to science, it can only go so far. It can tell us about the measurable, the observable, the empirical. But there's something else that crude scientism or bare scientism can't give us. And that comes into this, I think, again, these languages. We are dealing often as lawyers with uh, this, these higher ideals of justice, truth, compassion, mercy. And they're all things which you can't give a number to and which science can't always complete the concepts about. So we need to look elsewhere for these, I think, really metaphorical sources or metaphysical sources as a way of keeping refreshed about our notions about those important things. And that book, I deal with astonishment from a legal perspective in that book and others deal with it from other perspectives. Others deal with it from a scientific perspective or theological perspective. But it's really this concept that there is still something left in wonder there's still something left in exploring the inexpressible. It doesn't mean we're together completely encapsulated, but it that discourse, that dialogue, that rhetoric yes. in that, and in what Bach's doing also, is this way of orienting ourselves towards that higher. I completely agree. When you when you are sort of talking the way you are, I was just thinking back to this afternoon when we were rehearsing that six part Richard, which we'll be performing on Saturday night, and that sense of astonishment. All of us, as soon as we played that last night, just kind of went, "Oh my God, that what an experience that was!" Yes, and that's what we live for as musicians. Yes, that moment and all of the hard work, and we we must have spent two hours figuring out which voice goes where and who has the important voice, where's the hierarchy. But then, you know, we, we did sort of have a conversation about each line collectively spiralling upwards and upwards and upwards towards heaven. And it's a way of, of reaching God, if you if you yes. believe in God. It's a way of reaching heaven and something higher. Yes. And um, I live also for that feeling of astonishment. And I just think it's really important not to lose your sense of wonder generally in life. Yes, it seems to be this sort of the, the the bit of the bit of our existence which is life giving, if you like, as you're saying, you've got all the technical things down pat, and uh, you can complete the the technique of the performance. But above it is this something other, this transcendent, the thing which we wouldn't be able to reduce to words, and we certainly couldn't express in law. <laughs> yeah, I suppose in laws. <laughs> well, laws. Well, you know, laws rely on words, don't they? Yes, and we can become too trapped in words. And again, yeah. this is that way of just lifting us out a bit of the obsession with the legalistic and the word. Sometimes it's great and it's great for certainty. But if we're going to reach towards um, more open notions of justice, mercy, compassion, etc., then what we need to do is always remain open to these other sources, like literature is another one. Music literature are the way people say that experienced lawyers say um, people should keep open, if you like, to other possibilities to change and to different ways of looking at um, important situations. That's amazing. So you've talked about how music is one of the higher arts, like literature and all of that, and it can take us to a place that is above the muck and greed of the human condition, and it's a place of, of goodness. Um, and this idea of good, is it's a fascinating subject. Um, and so, you know, I personally think it's really important. What do you think? I do too. I think capital G good um, is something that 
obviously, as uh, we should keep front of mind, give priority to. There's a couple of interesting writers on this topic. One is Charles Taylor, a Canadian uh, philosopher who writes a bit about this, and he says that music is the church of the secular age for this reason. He says that these transcendent things are now happening in music, things we used to do in church and other ways. We can now experience only really through music. So he's got that lovely notion, in effect, of a cathedral of music and of this being, in a way, um, replacing something or keeping alive something with a wife lost in other areas of life. Iris Murdoch, a great philosopher too, talks about it. She says, all truth and the good is metaphorical, so we always need metaphorical ways of approaching the, to the topic. And that gives us this freedom, I think, that we might not always know precisely how to frame it, but we can move ourselves out of out of out of word language, if you like, and into the musical space as a way of coming together and giving priority to not only things that are beautiful, but things that help us think about um, fundamental concepts like truth and so forth, the true, the beautiful, the good. Yeah, no, it's it's an amazing thing to think about, actually. And I did read um, that little book of Iris Murdoch called The, the Sovereignty so of Good. Great book. Yes, introduced to me by yourself. Oh, thank thank you. you so much for that. That was an amazing read. And it made me think about what makes things good or what makes something good, capital G. And then I started thinking about what musicians do and also what Bach did his whole life. And um, for me as a musician, when I'm practising a piece of music and preparing it and I'm on stage, it's like you have to take yourself completely out of yourself. You have to totally forget about yourself and just think about how you're going to storytell and how you're going to express the music in the best possible way. And you know that you're creating something which is above politics and greed and everything else and I think that's why people come to concerts don't they they do just to to take themselves away and it's not to forget it's to reflect and feel more than anything yes and there's a fundamental sense of rightness and good about that isn't there yes and Bach seems to be as you say Bach seems to be concerned with that as his priority yes so he's not writing about Bach and he's not putting himself at the forefront He's writing about something that exists above and beyond us. And when he is composing, he seems to be doing it in the structure more of a dialogue or a democratic fair engagement between the voices rather than one dictatorial or one commanding um, pompous sort of um, voice coming over the top. And that's, I think, what's most interesting in the concept, in, in the, these concepts of truth and good, is if we adopt that sort of platonic approach, that ad approach that Plato's adopted, we might never hear the person in their own voice. We're always hearing this dialogue going on, the relational yeah. and the metaphorical is a way we seem to be able to lead the individual to have that transcendent experience. Whereas if we're commanding from the top down or we're too pompous, uh, we don't seem to take the audience into that transcendent space. That's right. And I think that's why Bach's music is perhaps more transcendent than other composers. I'm just thinking about some of the, the you know, the concertos of Bach. And, uh, you know, I've played all the violin concertos. And even though there is a solo line, you can always look at the way the orchestra is written and they comment and they come in and out of the texture. And sometimes they're there and then sometimes I'm there. And it is a dialogue and, and just the fugues as well. Um, when you have, say, a four-part fugue, each voice is individually as important. So Bach gives every, everyone an equal role, or if you like, makes them feel important and valued. And if everybody is given a chance to speak and also learns how to listen, 
then that transcendent experience happens. Yeah, and I can imagine, I'm not as talented as you, quite clearly, but I can imagine for you with your range of talents, it's also a way with the performers, I think, is it of experiencing different weight in voices and playing with the different tensions uh, when you're performing and rehearsing as well. Yeah, and actually Bach is a master of that. And you know what? He does it with harmony. Is that right? Yes, I mm. think. Um, yeah, you just sparked off an idea in my head. So it's the idea of tension and release. Yes. And not only does he do it with voices, but underlying all of that is the harmony. And it's it's just almost a rhetorical device, really, that mm. he uses, which is to take us on a harmonic journey and the lines on top are always reacting to the harmony underneath. And he can manipulate your emotions. Mm. Right? You know, you know, you've heard all sorts of his music and you'll you'll come to a certain passage. And then there'll be this amazing crunch and clash and dissonance. And you feel like your your insides have been turned inside <laughs> out. And then he'll release you and you think, oh, thank God. And you know, um, but yeah, he does it in such a masterful way. Yes, almost using the harmony as the beauty to get us in intuitively. And then taking us to different places, is that right? Have, yeah. Having got us there. Yes. And I think, yes, if I've just got, if I could pick one thing about Bach, which I think he does better than anyone else, it's taking us on a harmonic journey. And yes, he's fantastic at the, at the rhetoric of the, of the, the uh, almost speech-like ways yes. he crafts tiny little melodies and tiny little notes, cells, if you like. Um uh, but the harmonic journey, which underpinned it all, that's the that's the journey that that he wants you to go on. Yes, and from what you're saying, it seems that you can have this sort of concept of rhetoric in the harmony in agreement, but there's also off sometimes disagreement between the voices. Yeah, everyone's not um, everyone's not necessarily agreeing, but within it, there's a sort of harmonic unity as a whole. Yes, yes, uh, yes. It's almost like. You're all on a great big ship traveling the same ocean and that, that ocean is undulating underneath everybody, but on board, everybody's having this wonderful dialogue on top. Well, you can see how we get, to, I think, to these ideas of commonness or shared things. Well, which... we're all on this journey of life together, aren't we? Yes, and so often I think a lot of what we do, particularly contentious areas of law or politics or political authority generally, we're often focused on the way we're different or the way we are polar opposites. Mm. Um, and on things that don't always matter, but seem to at the time. Whereas I think this music and maybe rhetoric generally um, is this way of this art, if you like, of the human relational in in a in a civil way with the idea of us all achieving the same ultimate um, goal of the good life or the human flourishing or civic health, however you want to put it. Yeah, that's right. I, I think I need to quote Monty Python at this point. <laughs> it's just remember that we're standing on a planet that's evolving. <laughs> I think we need to pull out the galaxy. In the context of Bach and Plato and us. Where's a fridge? I need to step out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. I, everything you're saying, I agree with. Now, so this podcast is about Bach, which is why you and I are here. Now, you are here as an expert in your field, which is all about the word of law, and you've had so much experience in using language, but also seeing language used for both good and bad. And um, are you excited to be up on stage with Jonathan Biggers, AM, exposing the weapons of rhetoric with us all? Well, I'm secretly terrified because Jonathan does the stage for a living, whereas I do the courtroom for a living. And at They're least, both stages. If they are, exactly. I suppose we always separate the two as lawyers. We think the court's not quite a stage, but I imagine other people disagree. But, yes, I'm very excited. He's, of course, an eminent person in this field, and it'll be great to be um, with him demonstrating what you say are the weapons of rhetoric. And um, 
we've got, of course, the idea, I think, that rhetoric is in one way or historically been seen as clear and persuasive public speaking. But that's not really, I think, all that's going on there uh, in an acting sense or in a particular legal sense. That's taking place in a particular context. And the context often is this sense of public importance, political authority or justice, so that the art of persuading is not, again, about the advocate and shouldn't be about the advocate. Things go horribly wrong if you make it about yourself, but about the about the importance of the thing we're doing. So the importance of clear and good and persuasive speaking to achieve the aim of justice. Yeah, but, you know, rhetoric, if, if people really are experts in the art of, of rhetorical speaking and of of public speaking and the art of manipulating your emotions. Yes. It can be used for bad as well, can't it? It can be. It can be. And that's why I suppose as advocates we've got this idea that it's an empowering discipline but it comes with these restraints, ethical and other restraints, and we always have a judge there as an arbiter, for example. Mm. So there are there are constraints as well in the use of it. And we all know that some things to a jury or to a judge will always be persuasive. Mm. And there are things that even if you go too far on really are seen as, you know, um, uh, not not acceptable, but also not going to persuade your listener. Mm. If you've got a jury of so 12 people. there's a limit, people, isn't there? There is an, a natural limit almost on that, that mm. um, you can be witty, but to be cutting and rude, of course, doesn't persuade your audience. In fact, there's a fine line, isn't there? You might turn them off very, very quickly or turn them on. Yeah. So you've again, it's it's a very hard thing to get exactly right in a years of experience. They say the learning of the advocate is never over. It's a lifelong exercise, and I, I really believe that. Yeah. No, that's that's absolutely true. And I'm just thinking of uh, uh, politicians I've heard. You know, some of them are great and some of them are terrible at, at persuasion. And then, on the other hand, you have people like Tony Robbins. Yes. Yeah, the life coach slash master salesman <laughs> who seems to have the arts and the weapons of rhetoric down to an absolute fine art, regardless of what you think. Um, you know, he is a true master at that. So how do you know when you're being manipulated or not? Well, I guess the good uh, persuader... Uh, pushes out as far as they possibly can. But this is, I think, where this idea of the restraint comes in, and so too with Bach. Bach is not doing it to persuade merely to get you on board to his personality, just like his advocates we shouldn't be. In the end, you've got to keep focused on this goal of truth and good and beauty. So it's not about persuading at all costs. It's about persuading and keeping focus on something which in the end is above and beyond all of us. And perhaps that's why Bach's music has lasted all this time. And I'm just thinking of the great orators who whose speeches we remember, like Churchill before the Second World War, like Martin Luther King. They were speaking for good, weren't they? They to, were. Yeah, and for Cicero a higher to, truth and a better, a better truth. Antiquity. Pre precisely. And isn't yeah. it amazing that so many hundreds of years later, even in a world which might be look a little bit flatter and more secular than Bach's world, but here we are still loving Bach's music and still finding meaning mm. hundreds of years later in in something which constantly sort of reveals the new. And that's his rhetoric in a way because he's leaving us in this dialogue and this exchange and the relational to make up our own mind and to be carried into the transcendent space which you can't put in a, you can't bottle. You, know, it's you not really a, can't. <laughs> and therefore it's not fixed. You know, as soon as we 
reduce something to text or to hard words, it, we tend to kill it. The mm. text tends to kill things. But in here's is this spirit of life because he hasn't given us, he hasn't codified what he's doing. It just brings me to my sort of final question, which is rhetoric. Is it important? Is it important that we talk about it, that we keep thinking about it and we acknowledge it? And, you know, the history of it has been so long throughout thousands of years. Um, yeah, is it important in your eyes to, that we keep studying it? It's critical in not only the legal game, so to speak, but it's critical in society, I think. I think we've all realised in the last couple of years when we suffered in terms of the relational, we weren't together as much and we weren't face-to-face -face as much, that just how important that life-giving exchange is between people and how much we need to be face-to-face -face and relating and relating civilly and in dialogue. So I suppose that's the first thing. We've all got this renewed concept of its value but it, it it's going to be it's more necessary as we seem to have fewer things that keep us together as a society to keep this idea I don't mean of grand public speaking it's not the idea and it wasn't the idea I think historically but um, the the art of engagement with other person not being afraid of a point that might fundamentally affect your argument and being willing to deal with it or even to be persuaded and your mind changed and in law, we still got the tradition alive. We've got this medieval tradition in a way of a dualism or an adversarialism, which in some ways is constructive. You've got two people putting the different sides of the same point of, of the same set of facts or the same circumstances. So that what you have is this concept of the pursuit of truth through competing possibilities. So nothing we know when we're working at the margins or with difficult things is easier and nothing's often as it appears. And it's a way of testing, if you like, various possible possibilities about the circumstances, the case. And that's a way which at least we think and we thought for a very long time seems to lead us to a better and more reliable truth about what actually happened. And we can take that into all areas of our lives, can't we? That That sort of idea of if you can engage in the dialogue and keep your mind open and, and listen as well as talk, then you can reach a better place in all areas, really. Yeah, it seems so. And we're not always very good at it. No. But, uh, wouldn't it be nice to have more? But that's the importance of rhetoric. And, uh, you know, I think that's that was a huge motivation for me putting this program together was to demonstrate the importance of this subject of rhetoric, which we've had our three podcasts about, and that we are designing this whole program of music. Oh, and as I said before, I just can't think of a better composer than Bach to demonstrate the importance and the, you know, the actual result of wonderful dialogue and rhetoric and how great and good it can be and how transcendent it can be. Well, it's a great combination, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being my guest. It's been an honour to talk to you. Thank you. It's well, been fantastic to open my mind and delve into the world of the philosophical Yes, and, and metaphysical rhetorical, yes. and rhetorical. <laughs> thank you so much, Jonathan. Well, it's been my absolute pleasure to be involved. And thank you for involving me. I'm looking forward to the weekend. Me too. Our listeners out there, don't miss it this weekend, Saturday the 11th of June at City Conservatorium of Music, 7pm, and at Our Lady of Dolores Church in Chatswood on Sunday the 12th at 2.30pm. We'll see you there. Thanks, Madeline. I really hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. Now, to find out more about Bach Academy Australia, make sure you visit our website, which is www.bachacademyaustralia.com.au. 
Make sure you spell Academy the German way as well, spelt A-K-A-D-E-M-I-E, staying true to our German roots, of course. On our website, you can find out the details of all our upcoming performances near you, and you can subscribe to our e-newsletter. Also, you can find Bach Academy Australia on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. Bye.